This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. I'm so excited. I know that God has another blessing in store for us. And I really believe that you're going to be challenged by this study in the book of Genesis. Um, There are things here, again, I'm going to present that just, I believe, God wants us to understand like never before. Some of you may have heard of this stuff. Some of you may not. To me, it was brand new revelations. But again, I would highly recommend that you take notes. I was also asked if we can do a, a very special prayer. There's a woman who's about to go into surgery for cancer. And uh, the Bible says that when two or three agree on anything on earth, it shall be done for us by our Father in heaven. Amen? Amen. So let's pray right now, and let's also pray for the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for... Thank you, Lord, that we get to know you, the creator of all the universe. As we come before you, Lord, we ask humbly that you would bless us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, a greater thing right now we want to pray for is that the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, would be with this woman and her family, Lord. We pray you would guide the physician's hands, that you would give them precision, accuracy, and wisdom, Lord, to effectually deal with the problem. And God, we just commit this situation to you. Just pray that this would turn out for your glory, Lord. Please bless us now as we continue to learn and delve deeper into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. There is paper here that I'm going to ask Chang to pass out (laughs) if you would like some. So if you just want to raise your hand, we'll get some paper to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay, very good, very good. So... The name of this topic is called Secret Origins, Secret Origins, and specifically about the book of Genesis. What's so interesting about the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis begins to expose so much to us about God's plan of redemption. There are origins about God's plan of redemption. We see in the book of Genesis the origin of the great controversy on earth. We see in the book of Genesis origins about mankind. We see origins about the fall. We see origins about where this planet came from. The book of Genesis is extremely important. To understand the future, to understand the present, looking at the past is extremely important. Can you say amen to that? When I was in England, I was really, you know, I I, like most Americans, I kind of have a view of the English. And, uh, you know, I always think this is how English people are. But I, again, have been rebuked by God, when I went to England about a month and a half ago, about a month ago, I was really blessed by the English people, very impressed by them. When I went there, I noticed that there were buildings, some of the older buildings all over England. And I really appreciated that because they really believed in culture and keeping culture. There was museums everywhere. And when I went to the museums, I noticed that there would be uh, teachers taking their children in, taking the kids in, and their kids would be all over different things. And you go to America, you see the museums, they're empty many times. But England was considered a place of education, of culture. I really, really was blown away 
by that. Unfortunately, here in America, you do see culture being sort of eroded away, special culture, and now you have these sort of strange, fuzzy subcultures that are coming up that really have no basis in any real culture. That's just my opinion. But folks, what I was really impressed with was what I was really seeing in England. And that was that the past mattered. Can you say amen to that? A lot of Christian apologists will sometimes dismiss the book of Genesis as simply being symbolic or just spiritual language. It's not real literal. But what's so amazing about the book of Genesis is if we don't understand the book of Genesis, we don't understand why we're even here. We don't understand the plan of redemption completely. We don't understand so many fundamental things. That's why as we continue in the book of Genesis, we're going to just learn more and more about God. Now, I'm not going to get so much into creationism, so if you're looking for creation arguments, I apologize, that's not what this particular seminar is about. Although I will say this, one day I was uh, visiting a non-Adventist church, and I was, just had some time, it was like a Wednesday night, I said, I want to be part of a Bible study. And so I was looking around for different Bible studies, and uh, I went to one church, it had this place called the Vineyard, and I was like, oh, seems like a place where there's probably a Bible study. And so I went there to the Wednesday night meeting, and it was so strange because, you know, I sat there and I was like, so you guys study the Bible around here? And uh, they said, well, sort of. And so I said, okay. And so we sat around and they began to sort of pray. And well, this was so strange. As they were praying, all of a sudden this guy takes out this shofar. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, what's happening? And then they, they start praising God, and some of them get on their knees, and they're just like praising the Lord, and some lady takes out a, like a drum, she's like, dum, 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 dum. and they're just praising God, and saying all sorts of things, and I thought what was behind me was this late, the, I thought at first it was a kid with a shawl, just had a shawl, but then I noticed it was actually a lady who had a shawl, uh, and she was just floating around like this, and while they were singing and praising, and all these things, and I was just sitting there like a robot. Just looking back and forth, having the natural default frown. And I was just looking around, it was so hilarious because the guy that was leading out, he noticed I was very stoic and he was like, he started like singing in his prayer and he's like, breakthrough, breakthrough, breakthrough. No joke, just like that. And I was just sitting there and I was just like staring right at him like this. Kind of thinking, what, what's going on here? You know? And I realized it wasn't actually a Bible study that I got into, it was more like just what they call the praise session, according to that church. And so, left, and I went to a different church, and there was another one where they were having a worship service, so I was just walking around the lobby, and I noticed in the lobby that there was this poster, and it said, the creation of earth. And what it had was three different views about the creation of mankind. And they showed mankind, the first option was mankind evolving from a monkey, Another one was uh, a, a God creating man just out of the dust of the earth and breathing into him the breath of life, breath of life. And then all of a sudden, the third one was more of this theistic evolution that God had created the mankind and this world over many years, that it wasn't instantaneous. And so this guy walks up to me as I'm just looking at it, and I guess he presumes that I'm just a Hindu because I'm Indian. And so he comes up to me and. He's like, oh, wow, this is, like, this is good, glad you're here. He was an elder in the church. And he says, ah, I see you're looking at the creationism of, of, of the Bible. And I said, yeah, it's very interesting to me. He's like, well, and he started speaking very sophisticatedly. He said, you know, 
there's a lot of different views about how this earth and how mankind came to be. And he began to explain, and then he says, you know, I actually believe the third one, which is that God created this world and mankind over thousands of years. He says, that just makes a little bit more sense when you know what science is all about. And so he was telling me that, and I said, oh, that's very interesting. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, what? I said, if mankind was created over many, several, over many years, many generations, right, that would imply that death existed before mankind. I said, if death existed before mankind, that would also imply that sin existed before mankind. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that sin came in this world through Adam. I said, can you explain that to me? And he looked at me and he said, you know, I never thought of that. <laughs> I said, it's something you think about. The Bible can defend itself. Amen? I think it's C.H. Spurgeon who says, I defend the Bible like I defend a caged lion. I just let it out of its cage. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Secret origins, secret origins. Now we're going to be taking a very interesting look at the book of Genesis. We're going to start with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. When you're there, go ahead and say amen. It's not very hard to find. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be taking a good look at the creation of man. Let's start with verse 26. When you see the book of Genesis chapter 1, you see oftentimes a pattern that is repeated in the language. And God did this. And this happened, and God did this, and this happened, and God did this, and this happened, and God did this, and this happened. But I want you to see what happens when it comes to the creation of mankind. Okay? We'll start with Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26. Are we all there? Okay. Then God said, let us make man in what? Our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Here you see what is the common narrative found in the book of Genesis. God talks about him creating certain things. But when he came down to the creation of man, God says we're going to create him in our image. God talked about the creation of life, the creation of animals. He'd create them according to their kind. And over and over again you see the same language, but this is our first point. Verse 27 has oftentimes confused many people because of the unusual structure of the language. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. Does that sound like normal English to you, yes or no? No. You see a, a sort of repetition being used here. Here you see the normal narrative in Genesis chapter 1 of God creating everything. Finally, when it gets to the creation of man, it says, so God created male and female in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. You see God just sort of repeating himself over and over again, almost about three times in that one verse. That does not sound like normal English. Because it's not normal English. There is something that Moses knew about that verse. There is something that the Hebrew translators knew about the verse that most people in America don't know about that verse. Is that chapter 1, verse 27 is something called in Hebrew paradigmatic parallelism. In other words, it's a Hebrew poem. It's Hebrew poetry. That's why when you see the ordinary narrative going very smooth and fluid, then all of a sudden it gets to verse 27. It's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. It's kind of strange, right? It's repetitious. But what is so interesting was that when God inspired Moses about the creation of man, 
he would use poetic language. Now let me ask you a question, men. What is the purpose of poetry? Who wants to raise their hand in the lion's den? Huh? Yes, what is the purpose of poetry? To express beauty. Okay, very good. Anybody else? Yes. To express love. If you were giving poetry to somebody of the opposite gender, what would be the purpose? You're expressing emotion. Now think about this. When God was talking about the creation of the animals and the plants and the sky, it was fine. But when it came down to the creation of man, he impressed Moses to use this in the language of love. The creation of man was something written in extremely emotional language. This was something that was near and dear to the heart of God. The Bible even talks about how God created everything by the word of his mouth. But when it came down to man... He used his hands. Very interesting. One day I had one of my friends who was in Arroyo Grande. He was doing some work there. He's a guitarist. He went to a guitar shop. When he went there, he was noticing all the beautiful guitars and very pricey. And as he was doing there and just looking around, the owner came out and was right there by the counter. And uh, my friend noticed this one beautiful guitar. It was more beautiful than any of the guitars. And it was just right there on the wall. And so my friend says, how much is that guitar? And the owner said, that's not for sale. So why not? He says, that's a very special guitar. He says, well, how much is it? He said, it's, it doesn't have a price on it. It's so special. And my friend says, why is it so special? And he says, I'm going to tell you a story. I had a giant tree in my backyard. My grandpa put up a swing on that tree. And my dad used that tree on the swing. And I used that tree on the swing. And one day, lightning struck that tree. He said, I took that tree. What was left of it? And I made this beautiful guitar out of it with my own hands. And he said, as I was making this beautiful guitar, he says, all the memories of the past begin to come upon me. And he says, I begin to just weep as I was making this guitar with my own hands. Can you imagine when God is creating mankind? Do you realize God was well aware of the future? of what, man, what would happen between God and mankind when he was creating man? Can you, does it make sense why this was such an emotional experience with God? When God was creating mankind, God says, told Moses, this needs to be written in beautiful poetry. And it doesn't make any sense to us when we're reading in English because English tends to be very superficial compared to many different languages. But the Hebrew was so much deeper and there was actually rhythm structures within the language that don't make sense to us when we're reading in the English interpretation. But I want you to understand this. Point number one is that Adam's creation was written in the language of love. Amen? And God's a romantic. Amen? You think about guys giving flowers? God created the flowers. All right. <laughs> Take your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. I want you to see something else. We're going to look at point number two. Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 28. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and what? Subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now pay attention to the command that's given to Adam. When was this command given to Adam? As soon as he created Adam? I'm going to read it one more time. Then God blessed them. 
this, this specific command was given. I mean, how could Adam be fruitful and multiply if Eve wasn't around? <laughs> right? So this specific command was given to Adam and Eve. Now pay attention to the language, okay? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and what? Subdue it. Have dominion. There are key words in here we need to pay attention to, and that is... <gasps> Sorry about that. When a Bible drops, I just stop everything. Okay, it's just... It's just okay, okay. So God tells Adam, be fruitful, be multiply. Uh, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, subdue. Those specific words are used in the Old Testament, but they were generally used to describe conquerors. Now you think, okay, what's the big thing about a conqueror? What's the big deal about a conqueror? What is God saying to Adam? Did he have to go conquer the very docile brontosaurus? And, you know, these are docile creatures. Sin had to enter into the world. What was he conquering? But here's something I want you to pay attention to. It's not so much the language or what he was supposed to be doing, but what God was actually giving him was letting Adam know something. Adam was more than just the first man. Adam was declared king. Adam was crowned king in Eden. To him, this is found in confrontation, to him was given dominion over every living thing that God had created. He made Adam the rightful ruler over the works of his hands. And by the way, do you want to know when a man becomes a king? When does a man become a king? When he has a crown. Do you know who his crown was? Take your Bible, go to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. If you have Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4, I want you to raise your hand. Yes. Can you read Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4? Wait, what? A virtuous woman is a what? Crown of her what? Husband. In fact, read the rest of the verse too. By the way, did Eve cause shame to Adam? She did. That verse was something specifically applicable to the book of Genesis. By the way, when, at, when, e, when Satan was tempting Eve, you know what he was trying to steal from Adam? His crown. Wow. So we need to understand something, that Adam was the rightful ruler of earth. He was declared king in Eden. The very fact these commands were given to him was simply helping Adam to understand he was to be king. He had a very special responsibility in, on earth. Everything was created prior to him for him. Very special reason. And as Adam began to study out the mysteries of light and sound, as Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, excuse me, the story of redemption, she says he was studying out the mysteries of light and sound. He would see God in everything. What Adam and Eve essentially were were researchers, investigators in this planet, and they were seeing more and more about God's glory. There are some things that are only to be understood in education purely more than just, purely through more than just a classroom. Sometimes they need to be out there in the tangible field and there they should be able to experience things and as they experience things, you learn things. Experience was to teach them lessons they would never forget. So God was the, the, a very awesome teacher. But Adam was crowned king in Eden. But I want you also to pay some attention to something else. This is very interesting as well. Okay? Point number three. 
Was Adam created on the first day? He wasn't? Are you sure about that? Yeah, you better be sure about that. <laughs> was Adam created on the second day? No. Was he created on the third day? No. Fourth day? No. Did Adam see God create anything? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He did, Eve came after him, right? But did, did Adam see God create anything? No. He was snoring when Eve was created. Here's something I want you to understand. Adam never saw God create a single thing. My point number three is this. Adam had to believe by faith God was the creator. Adam had to believe by faith God was the creator. Faith isn't something that just is a new thing. Part of what Satan violated in heaven when he wanted to go into the counsels of God, he was violating the dynamics of faith. Faith is extremely important to God. And the reason why God gives us faith is because we are finite beings and it is very difficult for us to understand the infinite beings and we have to understand certain things by faith. But as we continue to grow and understand, we will learn more and more about this creator God. Can you say amen to that? We're going to make another point. The Bible, excuse me, Patriarchs and Prophets says something very interesting about Adam. That he was actually tipped off about the rebellion that took place in heaven. Did you know that? That's what she says in Patriarchs and Prophets. They were actually warned there was a rebellion in heaven. Is that biblical? Show me where it is in the Bible. Show me from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 where Adam was tipped off that there was a viable threat. Take your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 2. I want you to see something very interesting. He did give them a command to stay away from the tree, but that's not really so much uh, a threat as is what you're going to see as evidence, some evidence that seems to point out that Adam was tipped off about something. Take your Bible, go to verse 15. Then the Lord God, Genesis 2 verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him where? In the garden of Eden to tend it and to what? The word keep is the same word used in the book of Proverbs that says keep your heart with all diligence. Do you know what the word keep means? It means to guard. He was to guard what? He was to guard the garden. Now, were there freaky looking Tyrannosaurus Rex walking around at that time? Were other Allosauruses and Utah Raptors jumping around trying to get inside the garden? I mean, did that stuff exist? What would he have to guard against? He was tipped off. There was a threat. That is the reason why he was told, you need to guard this. Because you know what the Garden of Eden represented? It represented the communion between God and man. Between the communion between God and man. And what the sanctuary was was simply a mobile Garden of Eden. In fact, you know how you know this? Because where, when they were eventually kicked out, where did God station those angels? In the east. The east was the entrance to the sanctuary. Fiery angels set at the east. So the sanctuary was simply a mobile Garden of Eden. And what the sanctuary, earthly sanctuary was, was a picture of God's throne in heaven. One of the reasons why Satan hates the sanctuary is because it is a picture of the throne room of heaven where Satan began his rebellion. Very interesting. Very interesting. Here's some other points I think that we need to actually jump into. I think that are going to really 
point us to some, um, some things, okay? And here it is. Take your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 2. I want you to learn some things about Eden. Eden. We're going to learn about Eden. Does anybody know what the word Eden means? Yeah, it means pleasure, right? It's a very informal of the Hebrew. It means pleasure, right? When you say something is Edenic, it's not just describing something that's beautiful. It's something that's pleasurable. God created the Garden of Eden. It was the Garden of Pleasure, right? A very special place. But here's the thing I want to point out about the Garden of Eden. There's something there. Take your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four what? Riverheads. The name of the first was Fison. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bendelum, I'm not saying that correctly, and the onyx stone are there. The name of the third, second river is Gihon. It is the one that goes around the whole land of Cush. The name third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth is the Euphrates, right? Now, many times we'll look at something like that. We're saying, okay, well, that's very interesting. God apparently had four river heads come out of Eden. And we think to ourselves, okay, that's just describing sort of the terrain. I'm not really quite sure what that means. But it's so interesting when you take a good look at this, okay? Now, I made a very crude map, and I mean crude. Okay? <laughs> There you have earth, right? And there you have Eden. And there you have the Garden of Eden, right? I'm pretty sure it didn't look exactly like that, okay? Let's make sure that's very clear. It did not look like that. It was much more beautiful, okay? And there you have it. This is a very crude artwork again. And there you have, right there, you have going into the garden. And then you have four river heads that parted. I always thought to myself, what in the world does this mean? And I struggled with this, and I was prayerful about this, and God began to lead me to some very interesting conclusions. When you take a good look at the word four that appears throughout Scripture, usually four represents something that is sort of the boundaries of this earth, the four corners of this world, right? You see that over and over again throughout Scripture. What is so interesting is that the Garden of Eden was something that was never meant to stay a garden. Look what Ellen White says right here talking about the final restitution, where there will be a new heaven and new earth, it will be restored more gloriously adorned than at the beginning. Then they that have kept God's law shall breathe in immortal vigor beneath the tree of life. And through unending ages, the inhabitants of a sinless world shall behold in that garden of delight a sample of the perfect work of God's creation, untouched by the curse of sin, a sample of what the whole earth would have become. Had man fulfilled the Creator's glorious plan? In other words, the Garden of Eden was to grow, and literally what God was wanting with the planet was to be a veritable rainforest of Eden. One of the reasons why those riverheads were, my speculation is simply that they were designed just that's the direction the garden was to keep growing. Over, she makes another quote where she says something very similar that the garden was supposed to be growing. It was something that was to spread all over God was wanting this planet to be a rainforest of Eden. Schools that would be set up where man could commune with God in nature and there he can commune with his Savior. But you see this, that this plan did not take place. Yet there's still a little bit that's preserved. And where is that little bit? You read the book of Revelation. It's in heaven right now. It's very interesting. When you read the book of Revelation and you see part of the Garden of Eden, do you know what's there and what's not there? 
Yeah, the tree of life is there, right? The tree of life is there, right? Is the other tree there? Now, why would the tree of knowledge of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil, would be present in the book of Genesis, will be completely missing in the book of Revelation? We already have the knowledge. We've passed the test. That's exactly right. There is no need. Has God done away with free will? Absolutely not. Yes, everyone has chosen, right? And ultimately, we learn from the first day what will be the ultimate security of God's people and the sinless angels throughout all of eternity. Will it be the sight of people burning in hell forever and ever? No. What will keep the entire universe safe? We learned. And what it says, it will be the Lamb of God. It will be the cross of Calvary that will keep the universe. And she even says angels today, basically, are only safe as they look upon the sufferings of Christ. You weren't here on day number one, go talk to Audioverse or GYC later on. All right. Very interesting as we look at this. Now I'm going to show you something very interesting, okay? Now, it is this. When you take a good look at the Sabbath, take your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Are we all there? Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. Oh, excuse me. Genesis chapter 2. I apologize. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he had rested from all the work which God had created and made. So God rested when? On the seventh day, right? But I also want you to pay attention. When did God actually bless and sanctify the Sabbath? Did he bless and sanctify the Sabbath on the Sabbath? Read it again. Did God bless and sanctify the Sabbath? When did, he, when did he bless and sanctify the Sabbath? After he kept the Sabbath, which means Adam and Eve were not made aware of the sanctity of the Sabbath until after it was kept, which teaches us how God did or how God taught the Sabbath truth to Adam and Eve. It was purely by example in the beginning and then by doctrinal instruction afterwards. I had some good friends one day that were staying with me, and it was Sabbath, and it was just, it was just good. We went to church, I spoke, and then we got some good potluck, ate some good undescribable food. Indescribable food, like either one works. And so like afterwards, I said, hey, we're going to go take a park, walk in the park. We went for a walk in the park, and then we came home, which I think it was a Bible movie or a documentary, I forget what it was, and we watched it, and it was great. Then we took a traditional 15-minute Sabbath nap, then woke up, then we had Vespers, invite some friends over, then we had some guitar, and then we ate some food, then we had some game night, Saturday night, like all the Adventists do. And we did all these things, and it was just really great for some of my friends who weren't Adventists. And they were just so, oh, this is so interesting. And I said, this was just a really great day with you. I said, I know. I said, do you know this is a very special day with God, though? The reason why you've been so blessed is because this is God's holy day. This is God's holy day. But here's another question I want to bring up to you, okay? Take your Bible. I want you to show you something very interesting. The Bible describes what God actually was doing on the Sabbath. What God was actually doing on the Sabbath, okay? 
Take your Bible and go to Exodus. Now, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to lead you to another thought, though, with this, okay? We're going to the book of Exodus. And we're going to start with verse 16. Okay, check 31, verse 16. Exodus 31, verse 16. I'm going to show you something very interesting about the Sabbath. The Bible describes God doing something very special on the Sabbath, and I'm going to tie a very interesting point to this that I think we need to be aware of. Are we all there? All right. Take a good look at verse 16. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a what? Perpetual covenant, right? It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested, period. No. And what? He was refreshed. Now, what's so interesting about this word is something we need to pay attention to. Stephen Bohr, I think, does something on this, but this is where I'm going to take it off into a different direction. The Bible says that what God was doing was he was refreshed. The word actually means to take in a breath. It means to sigh. It means like to just to almost enjoy, right? You're like, ah. And so what God was doing essentially on the Sabbath was enjoying creation with Adam and Eve, right? In fact, when you read the book of Acts, the Bible says Paul went down to Riverside on the Sabbath. Did he go to Loma Linda on the Sabbath? No. He went to the river side, right? And there, there were some people who were praying. I think I, I, I'm passing the Ben Adventist too long, Mark. Okay, so uh, he was there and, you know, enjoying out nature. You see Jesus walking throughout the fields, throughout, you know, nature, you know, on the Sabbath. And you can see what Jesus did. He went to Peter's mother-in-law's house on Sabbath for lunch, for potluck, and healed Peter's mother-in-law's house as well, mother-in-law as well. But what's so interesting, the Bible says something about God, that he was actually refreshed on the Sabbath. He was what? Refreshed. He took in a breath. When you read throughout Scripture, you read that whenever God creates anything, he's giving his breath. When you read when God created mankind, he's giving his breath. The Bible says everything was created by, the, by, the, by his breath. Even when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he gave up the breath. Over and over again, in the work of God, God was giving of his breath, he was giving of his breath, he was giving of his breath, he was giving of himself. Okay? Over and over again. Now let me ask you a question. How many people here think that they could survive physically by continually breathing out? We're going to try it right now. I want you to keep breathing out. Go. Yeah, five seconds, okay? You couldn't do that, right? You'd collapse. Your lungs would collapse. But here's the thing I want you to pay attention to. God is not somebody who is physically uh, restricted by nature. I mean, he doesn't have, he's like, he's worn out. He's just tired. He's, whoa, this one's, this one's a little intense. But God can be emotionally tired. Do you want to know what's so special about the Sabbath? Because it's the one day where God actually takes in a breath. Look what Ellen says right here. She says something so beautiful. She says, the Sabbath is the golden class that unites God and his people. Do you know on the Sabbath, you refresh the heart of God. God is actually refreshed. God has dealt with 
generations of rebellion over and over again, you can imagine the heart of God has just been weary and burdened. You can imagine just the rebellion. By the way, let me ask you a question. Did the Sabbath exist before the creation of this planet? Can you give me some evidence where this is? Did the Sabbath exist before the creation of this planet? I have not found any evidence whatsoever that the Sabbath existed before the creation of this planet. It will continue to exist, you know, in heaven, but I found no evidence. So if anybody has, please show it to me. I've just really looked all over the scriptures and spirit of prophecy. I have not found any evidence to show that the Sabbath existed prior to the creation. This is something that is entirely a new institution. The question is, why is it a new institution? Well, I'll let you figure that one out. But can you imagine God, who's creating mankind, has just dealt with a rebellion that took place in heaven. His loyal angels, his most trusted one, rebelled against him. Can you imagine that burden that God feels? Sometimes we think of God as being impersonal. God feels every emotion. You know, Ty Gibson, he, Ty, Ty's a good guy. I like Ty a lot. He's a little emotional, but I like him. And uh, one time he said something, he was just like, he's like, God is the most emotional being in the world. Like he just said it like that. And I was like, what? You know, that's, I understand, you know, that's just, I'm, you know, I'm masculine. You know, that's where it's just like, all right. But, you know, I begin to realize something that the Bible says in Isaiah 63, in all our affliction, he's afflicted. God feels what we feel. He's burdened by what burdens us. And what's so beautiful about the Sabbath is that God is refreshed. The Bible says he was refreshed by the keeping of the Sabbath with Adam and Eve. You can refresh God's heart by the way you keep the Sabbath. You know that? The Sabbath keeping is so important. It's special between you and the Lord. You need to look at Sabbath keeping in a whole new way. That's why the Bible says in Isaiah 53, don't speak your own words and do your own actions and do your own pleasure. Is it saying don't do any pleasure? No. It's, saying, it's implying speak God's word. Do God's pleasure. right? Do the things that bring God glory. You can refresh the heart of God on the Sabbath. And God will be blessed by you. Just as much as he blesses you on the Sabbath. Can you say amen to that? That's why it's called the Lord's Day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now we're going to take a very interesting look in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to take a good look at the rebellion. Starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees. I keep thinking about the pygmy story right now. <laughs> of the garden. But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God says you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you what? Die. That's right. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not what? Surely die. The talking snake was talking to her. Okay? And as he was talking to her, he was so blown away that there was a serpent who was talking, and this was not normal. In their experience of what happened in the Garden of Eden, this was not normal. Okay? So as this was happening, watch what takes place. Next. So, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and it was pleasing to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise. And by the way, pay attention to this one's This one's a free one right here. She saw that the tree was what? Good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Are those bad attributes? Yes or no? No, they're not. To desire food is a good attribute. To what? Beauty is a godly attribute, and wisdom is a godly attribute. What is lust? Lust ultimately is when you take these three attributes and you displace them. And there's, over, there's just a, an intemperance of these three attributes. That's why the Bible says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust what? of the pride of life. In other words, what God gave to Adam were just three special focuses. Food. They were to learn more about God from just eating, just to taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then they were to see beauty. They were to see the handiwork of God. And as they studied out wisdom... More and more they became Christ-like. But let's continue with this, because you're going to see something very interesting. And after they rebelled, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruits and ate. She gave to her husband her with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sowed what? Fig leaves. And by the way, what did Israel, what was Israel representative, represented by in their, in their final rejection of God? As a fig tree. Let's keep going. Together and made themselves coverings. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God from the trees of the garden. When you read the book of Revelation, you will find it's not just one person hiding in, the, in nature. It's actually a whole bunch of people who are trying to run from the presence of God. They're hiding in the rocks and the caves. Right? We just think it's the Adventists that are going to hide in the rocks and the caves at the end of time. The wicked are going to be hiding in the rocks and the caves also at the end of time. But instead of running towards God, they're running away from God. Okay, let's keep going. You're going to see something very powerful, I promise. And then the Lord God said to Adam, where are you? And we know the rest of the story. But I want you to pay attention to what takes place at the, at the, the confronting of Adam and Eve and the serpent. Okay, verse 14. So the Lord said to the what? Serpent. Because you have done this, you are more cursed than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat, what? Dust. Which implies you have another mode of transportation, right? If that was the curse, then it would imply something else. There was another way by, he, by which he could travel. Okay, let's keep going. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and what? Her seed. Now this is key. This is considered the first messianic prophecy. Okay? Now this is where we're going to start really digging into this. Okay? God tells the devil, he says, this woman's seed, and who was the woman? Eve. This woman's seed is going to destroy you. Right? And so let's keep going. I promise you're going to see something nice. It's like, you better, better. Okay, let's keep going. Okay. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall what? Bruise his what? Do you know what the word heal is? It's actually the, uh, the variant form of the word Jacob. Very interesting. He will bruise your Jacob. What word is Jacob? Apply in English. Jacob. Okay, let's keep going, okay? And notice this. The Messianic prophecy says that he would bruise, the Messiah would bruise who? The head. And you see the story of Goliath, right? 
And you see the story of Daniel chapter 2, right? In fact, if you do a study of Daniel, it's interesting. You see some symbiology there. It's a little bit of a stretch. But you see David, when he actually takes on Goliath, the Bible says that Goliath, that he slayed a lion and a bear, and then Goliath had both bronze and iron. Very interesting. So you kind of see this sort of this, and what was the Christ? He was called the son of David, right? But that's not even the left hook. It's not the left hook. Let's keep going. The woman said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Now go to verse 17 because this is where it becomes key. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground for who? Your sake. I actually read a book by Scott Christensen. It came out not too long ago. It's an Adventist book. It's called Planet in Distress. The title says Environmental Deterioration and the Great Controversy. And essentially what he lays out, he works for ADRA, or he works for ADRA, and he lays out an argument and he simply says that because of mechanized farming, industrialized agriculture, because of mass production, production of food, including the use of you know, GMOs, he says what mankind has done has essentially he has attempted to lift the curse that was placed upon earth. But here's the question. Why was the curse placed on earth? For whose sake? For our sake. It was to teach Adam lessons and the children lessons about how to stay faithful, how to keep working, not to be idle because idle, idleness is the devil's playground. And what has been the result of lifting this curse? You have moral depravity. People aren't working anymore. You have kids that don't even know how to change a tire. They know how to change video games. They don't know how to change tires. And what's happening, even the Bible talks about Sodom. Do you know what Sodom's real sin was? The Bible says in Ezekiel 16, it was fullness of bread, idleness, and pride. Okay, think about that. This has become something that's widespread in America today because we have attempted to lift the curse that God essentially placed on earth for mankind. It has resulted in moral depravity and societal breakdown. Let's keep going. Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the herb, herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return. Can you imagine? You know what God was saying to Adam? Adam, you will be responsible for bringing, you are responsible for bringing death upon this planet. And can you imagine that? Here Adam was not fully realizing what's happening. And by the way, do you know what caused Adam Eve the greatest pain as they begin to see the decay of this world? She says that, that they wept over something that men, more than men wept over today when someone dies. When the first leaf fell. But here's the thing I want you to understand, which implies when the skins that were made for them came from animals, they were probably not present when it took place. Why? Because they couldn't handle it. So God had to slowly reveal the plan of redemption to them because they were not able to handle it. But here's something I want you to understand. Don't miss this point because this is key right here. God was telling Adam, you are going to be responsible for death. This world is going to be cursed because of you. There's going to be so much death. And you can imagine Adam not fully realizing, but one day he would fully realize it. 
And here he is, he's learning about how death would come upon the world. We're not just talking about thousands of people who would die. We're talking about billions that would die because of Adam's transgression. Billions. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, she says that Adam wandered around as an old man during the antediluvian time, and he was telling people about the fall and about creation, and they shunned him. Sometimes we see like this homeless man walking around this city. We don't know their past, and you can imagine Adam. He's trying to convince people, and all they see is this old man who's just foolish and has gone insane. And he's telling them about the plan of redemption over and over again, and here he is seeing death and decay, and he is seeing so much sin coming upon the world. He is seeing animals that he once was able to just pet, run away from. He is now seeing fear all over the world. Everything was culminating at that point when God was telling Adam, you are responsible for this transgression. You are responsible. And he was. Adam was guilty of sin. And it was Adam's transgression. And this is Adam now having to face the facts that death would come upon the world. But Adam did something immediately afterwards which shows something very interesting. Watch what Adam does next because this is the key point. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Did Adam think to himself, well, I'm just going to pretend like this didn't happen and go back to working with God. Start naming all the animals again, right? Is that what he was doing? No. In fact, when you read what he did in Genesis chapter 2, you know why he was naming the animals? It was representative of the character of those animals, right? He was designing a position, a place for these animals when he was naming them. And here at the moment when he is getting his condemnation for his sin, he turns to Eve and he says, but this woman shall be called Eve. Because she is the mother of life. You know what Adam was doing right now? His faith was looking to the promise of the Redeemer who would come through who? The woman. God says, you've just brought death upon this world. Adam says, but life is going to come through her. And that's why her name will be called Eve. The naming of Eve was crucial and it took place right after Adam's condemnation. And it was showing that Adam had faith in the promise of the Redeemer. That's why he named Eve the mother of life because life would come through her. The Messiah would come through her. And that's why when you read Revelation, the Bible talks about the Messiah coming through the seed of the woman. Adam, by faith, looked to the promise of God that was given in Genesis 3, Genesis 3, verse 15. Folks, I want to end with this quote. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden. Matthew 11, verse 28. He bids you exchange your poverty for the riches of his grace. We are not worthy of God's love, but Christ our surety is worthy and is abundantly able to save all who shall come to him. The Bible says, Zephaniah, he's mighty to save. Amen? Even someone like you. Whatever may have been your past experience, however discouraging your present circumstances. In other words, where you are at right now, if you will come to Jesus just as you are, like Adam, 
Weak and helpless and despairing, our compassionate Savior will greet you a great way, far, a way, great way off. He will throw about you His arms of love, His robes of righteousness. He presents to the Father, clothed, us to the Father, clothed in the white raiment of His own character. He pleads before God in our behalf, saying, I have taken the sinner's place. Look not upon this wayward child, but look upon me. Does Satan plead loudly against our souls, accusing of sin and claiming us as his prey? The blood of Christ pleads with greater power. Can you say amen to that? And that's what Adam looked to. He looked for the seed of the woman who would come and would redeem a fallen race from this world. Adam believed in righteousness by faith. He believed in the blood of the Lamb. Can you say amen to that? I like what one preacher said. You are justified before you're qualified. And you are loved before you're made lovable. Amen? God loves you. He loves you, folks. However present is your discouraging circumstances, if you come to Him just as you are, He'll throw His arms of love around you. Amen? Adam and Eve walked out of that garden. They wore those robes or those, those animal skins. There was faith in their heart that the Redeemer would come. But little did they know that they were already looking at the Redeemer Himself, Christ, who would come. And little did they know that that Redeemer would die at that very moment, <coughs> would die for, for their sins. And while Adam and Eve walked out of that garden trusting in the righteousness of Christ, the plan of redemption was being unfolded. Folks, we have a Savior who loves us, who loves you. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this Bible study in the book of Genesis. Oh Lord, we're still scratching the surface, but we thank you for the faith of Adam, Lord, who looked up. And when he felt the greatest condemnation, Lord, his faith broke through the clouds and he believed the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for your righteousness and for the Redeemer. Thank you for dying for our sins, Lord, and cleansing away our iniquities. Please give us faith to keep trusting, keep hoping in the salvation you have freely given to us. Thank you for the blood of the Lamb which pleads louder than the accusations of Satan. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, Visit us online at gycweb.org.